Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello everyone, and welcome to The History of England, episode 293. Sex and Marriage Last time, we got onto the subject of the Queen's marriage and her romance with Robert Dudley. Honestly, I sought to wrap things up last week, but I got my pacing wrong, so you're going to have to suffer for it now. Rather tangentially, we left with Amy Robsart, otherwise known as Mrs Dudley, sending out all her staff to a local fair on the 8th of September 1560. We do not know an awful lot about Amy. She and Robert were married in June 1550 and they lived in London at Somerset House for a while. And Amy stayed in London while her hub was defacing the walls of Beecham Tower. The couple were then apart rather a lot over the next few years. The Dudleys had been attainted and Robert needed support from Amy's folks for a while and Amy stayed in Hertfordshire when Robert was at court. Then they moved together to Cumnor near Oxford, but again Amy was mainly on her own, as far as we know it has to be said. There are relatively few records on her whereabouts. But it's quite possible she did not see her husband at all in 1559, so you know, the fires of passion don't appear to be burning terribly high. But then, another couple's marriage is a foreign country, as they say. Do they say that? Hmm. So, on the 8th of September 1560, Amy insisted that many of her staff go to Abingdon Fair. Some of them didn't want to go, but she shooed them out, which seemed mighty odd. Later that day, Amy was found lying dead at the bottom of the stairs. The inquest found she had two marks on her head, but the cause of death was a broken neck. Dudley was at court with the Queen when news reached him. In all ways he appeared to be shocked and distressed. The Journal of State mentioned that When the Lord Robert went to his wife, he went all in black, and how he was commanded to say that he did nothing with her when he came to her, as seldom he did. Now, it took until 1567 for Amy's half-brother to approach the Privy Council with a claim that she had been murdered, a claim that was swiftly and comprehensively kicked into touch. The 19th century then saw a rash of murder theories appear, but it's very difficult to see how Dudley could have known Amy was going to be unaccompanied that morning since she only dismissed her staff that very day. And anyway, he was away away at Windsor. All very strange. However, it has been rightly observed that there is no smoke without fire. Probably not true in this case as it happens, but there was a lot of smoke. The Protestant preacher Thomas Lever wrote to Cecil from Coventry that Here in these parts seemeth to me to be a grievous and dangerous suspicion and muttering on the death of her which was the wife of my lord Robert Dudley. There was great display of mourning at court on behalf of Dudley and his friends 
but it was viewed with a certain amount of cynicism. One courtier described him as a great hypocrisy. The smoke then drifted across the channel where the English ambassador, Nicholas Throckmorton, was roosted by French courtiers laughing at him. Because surely, they said, Dudley had killed his wife and now he would marry the Queen. Throckmorton was desperate. My heart bleedeth to think upon the slanderous brutes I hear, which if they not be slaked, or that they prove true, our reputation is gone for ever. And he wrote letter after letter to his friends at the English court, asking for information. Some of it that came back was not encouraging. Thomas Killigrew writing, The rumours have been very rife, but the Queen says she will make them false. Dudley was well aware of what this sort of malicious gossip could do to him. He was desperate from the coroner's investigation to inquire into the manner of her death and identify any foul play and so clear his name. When the jury returned and decided that death was accidental, that helped a bit, but didn't stop the gossip and the rumour. Didn't help that Dudley was aware that Cecil was very much again the idea of Dudley and the Queen marrying. Cecil was a man much given to lists, a feature he shared with my father as it happens. If he had a problem, that Cecil, not my father, he'd do two columns, pros and cons. As regards the possibility of Dudley's marriage to the Queen, his conclusion wasn't entirely positive. Here we go. Nothing is increased by marriage to him, either in riches, estimation, power. It will be thought that the slanderous speeches of the Queen with the Earl have been true. He shall study nothing but to enhance his own particular friends, to wealth, to offices, to lands, and to offend others. He is infamed by the death of his wife. He is far in debt. He is like to prove unkind or jealous of the Queen's majesty. So, not keen in summary. Some others did not share Cecil's negative view. The Earl of Sussex, for example, wrote to Cecil to argue that, look, the main thing is that the Queen produces an heir, and that was far more important than whether that came from Dudley or not. But others were not so keen on the idea of the marriage. They disdained the Dudley name. Three generations ennobled, and two of those traitor, and the third one's not under the ground yet. But many also feared that if Dudley became King Robert, there would be retribution for those failing to support his father, the Duke of Northumberland, in the days of Lady Jane Grey. Tensions at court came so intense that a brawl erupted between Dudley's retainers and those of the Earl of Pembroke, one of those signal deserters and betrayers of Jane Grey. However, the Queen continued to receive Dudley most positively, and Dudley continued to hope. It may be that Elizabeth simply refused to see or hear the rumours zipping around, and certainly nobody marched up to her, slapped her on the back, and told her that loads of her court thought she and Dudley had done in Amy Robsart so that she could marry Dudley. It would not be surprising if the Queen was the last to know such a thing. But news certainly reached her through one of her suitors, the Duke of Holstein, who wrote to her that he was anxious about her honour, 
by which he meant he'd heard the rumours that she and Dudley had got it on and found it difficult not to believe them. The letter seemed to have horrified Elizabeth, and in terms of chat-up lines, it can hardly be accounted much better than the standard disco romantic gambit, you don't sweat much for a fat lass. There are various theories about the death of Amy Robsart, since there was clearly a motive for Dudley, the Queen, and probably Cecil to discredit Dudley. Or it's been suggested that he had cancer, or was depressed and this was suicide. But the very strong balance of probability is that it was just what it seemed, a tragic accident. But, accident or not, Amy Dudley's death comprehensively and finally nixed there being any chance that the Queen could marry Dudley. Now, Robert clearly didn't believe that, and Elizabeth fought against believing it too, but a change in her was noticed at court. The Queen's Majesty looketh not so hearty and well as she did, by a great deal. And surely the matter of my Lord Robert does greatly perplex her, and is never like to take place, and the talk is somewhat slack, as generally misliked. At the same time, Elizabeth cancelled plans to make Dudley an earl, a move that would have been necessary to give Dudley the status he needed to marry her. Although both of them continued to dream of the possibility of marriage, Elizabeth probably never came as close again as she had done before Amy's death in 1560. That did not mean she was prepared to give up her favourite, far from it. Dudley's apartment stayed next to the Queen's, she continued in her favour and intimacy, Dudley continued to enlist help where he could to press his suit. Many in court would think they were close to marrying in 1562, but the reality was that the death of Amy hung over them both and ended their chances of what would anyway have been a controversial marriage. But their friendship, and indeed flirtation, would remain a feature at court. Before we move on to the other plans for Elizabeth to marry, we should probably produce some sort of guess in answer to the question my mate Timmy asked me. So, did they add sex then? According to Timmy, everyone is desperate to know, hanging on my every word to know, which I doubt, I have to say. But, just for Timmy's sake, what do we think? As I think I have said, Elizabeth was indignant at the very idea. A thousand eyes were on her. She was never alone, even at night in her bedchamber. Painfully conscious of wagging tongues, Elizabeth paid £500 a year to a groom called Tamworth to be in Robert's bedchamber constantly as a sort of chaperone. Elizabeth was very conscious of her honour and her reputation. Now, it's possible that she and Robert managed to find some time alone together. Those of suspicious minds have wondered at the annuity for life and other generous gifts given to said Tamworth. So it's possible he was told to make himself scarce for an hour or so, though if so, he kept very quiet about it. But it is possible to contemplate some kind of a sexual activity, if that's the appropriately euphemistic phrase. There's no doubt both were interested. Personally, I doubt it, but it's possible. What I refuse to believe, though, is that the dashboard lights encourage them to go all the way. Think about the impact if they were discovered. 
any other marriage alliance would become a no-no. Confusion about any heir Elizabeth did produce would muddy the succession irretrievably. The impact on Elizabeth's reputation would be disastrously damaged. Court politics would go potty and Elizabeth's ability to govern damaged. I don't believe it. One snippet of evidence to support this view came in 1562 when Elizabeth contracted smallpox. For a while she looked set to die and everyone went nutty with worry about the succession. With the prospect of meeting her maker, Elizabeth was clear, according to one report. The Queen protested at the time that although she loved and always loved Lord Robert dearly, as God was her witness, nothing improper had ever passed between them. And I think that's good enough for me. In 1559, though, the air at Elizabeth's court sounded like a hot summer's day, with the humming of bees all around her as suitors flew to the honeypot that was the most eligible bachelorette in the history of stag parties. Even Penelope would have been impressed by the number. I say suitors, but for the main part, it was, of course, the ambassadors of foreign potentates doing the work. There wasn't much point in Philip II of Spain, for example, coming all the way from Madrid just to find that Elizabeth was washing her hair that day. I mention Philip because he was the first into the lists. It's an interesting one because, of course, Philip would become England's implacable enemy at some point for whom the cause of religion trumped dynasty and who would pour treasure unimaginable into the attempt to bring the Netherlands and England back to Rome. But in February 1559... Elizabeth had not yet declared herself religiously and Philip was still fixed on the traditional rivalry with the Valois of France. Now, I'm not going to lie to you. What follows will not appear on a list of the great romances of all time and Philip's chat-up technique appears to be modelled on Darcy's first attempt at Elizabeth. Philip knew Elizabeth, of course, but this would not be a love match but a business arrangement. His principal adviser in England, Count Ferrer, was convinced of the importance of who Elizabeth married. The more I think of this business, the more certain I am that everything depends on the husband this woman may take. Ferrer developed a strategy of running down the very idea of Elizabeth's marriage to an Englishman, for sure to the very thought. But to his hurt astonishment, do you know that Ferrer was not welcomed by the new court. They are glad to be free from your majesty, as though you have done them harm instead of good. I am so isolated from them that I am much embarrassed and puzzled to get the means of what is going on. For truly, they run away from me as if I were the devil. Well, who'd have believed it, eh? Rotten old English xenophobes. It just so happens, though, that Philip himself was not terribly keen. His bit remained unchamped. He worried about the difficulties that stood in the way of the distance and the cause of his prodigious other responsibilities. When he thought of the cost of the various knees-up in which he'd need to invest, it gave him a serious pain in his wallet. But the cause of religion called... I am resolved to render this service to God and offer to marry the Queen of England, he concluded. Well, thank you so much. Very noble of you. It was a decidedly gloomy Philip who ordered Ferrer to present his suit to the Queen. He wrote that he felt like, 
a condemned man awaiting his fate. If it were not to serve God, believe me, I should not have got into this. He might have done better to tell Elizabeth that she appeared not to sweat much for a fat lass. Meanwhile, there remained a badger in the house in the form of the House of Commons, who petitioned Elizabeth to marry and marry an Englishman, if you wouldn't mind, please. Elizabeth was politic. In her heart of hearts, she was probably deeply irritated by this presumptuous involvement by her subjects in what was surely a private matter. But she was gracious and gave a reply so evasive that any modern politician would have been proud. Yea, to satisfy you, I have already joined myself in marriage to an husband, namely the Kingdom of England, and behold, which I marvel ye have forgotten, the pledge of this my wedlock and marriage with my kingdom. Over the next few months, Ferrer met repeatedly with Elizabeth, but rather than advancing, the suit got worse and worse, because Elizabeth was becoming clearer and clearer in her religious direction. On one occasion, she roundly dismissed the authority of the Pope, and Ferrer's chin wobbled with fury all the way home, and is probably still wobbling to this day. On another, she said that several persons had told her that your majesty would come here and then go off to Spain directly. An observation so acute that Ferrer wondered if she'd been reading his letters to and from Philip. She also laughed heartily when she said it, which would have been irritating for Philip. Elizabeth played around naughtily with this theme. On another occasion, Ferrer wrote to Philip that she said, that she could not marry your majesty as she was an heretic. You can't help feel that Elizabeth was having a bit of fun, teasing Philip and his envoy. In the end, it was ended by the end of March, with Elizabeth and Ferrer blaming each other for the breakdown. But by this stage, Philip had already moved on anyway. He'd got married to Elizabeth of Valois by proxy, the little tinker. The proxy, incidentally, was the Duke of Alba, who rather delightfully also stood in for his master for the evening putting-to-bed ceremony. Such dedication is there no end to the length the man would go to to serve his king. Quite apart from really not wanting to get married at all, Elizabeth gambled that Philip would for some time remain suspicious of France as his most powerful enemy, and she calculated correctly. It would indeed be a while before Philip was prepared to break with England. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Banish any shadow of doubt she may have that because she did not marry me and I have entered into the French alliance, I shall take any less interest in her affairs, Philip ordered Ferreira to say. Anyway, a bit like a relay team, other Habsburgs took over the baton from Philip's hand. When Emperor Charles had abdicated in 1556, the title of Emperor and his German lands had been given to Ferdinand, Philip's brother, while Philip took Spain, the Netherlands, Naples and Milan, darling. 
So, now Ferdinand advanced the idea that one of his sons, Charles or Ferdinand, might be of interest to Elizabeth. The Rolling Stone that was the Queen's marriage competition was now shedding substantial moss as it gathered pace, thundering down the hillside estate. Prince Eric of Sweden, who had the benefit of being a prot, threw his hand into the ring too. The Duke of Holstein, the brother of the King of Denmark, sent in his application form too, though he'd rather spoil it by asking if the Queen's honour was intact, as, he, as we said. Then there was William, Duke of Savoie. Elizabeth was in heaven, playing them like fish. One moment she was reminding ambassadors that she was minded not to marry, the next that she never said she would never marry. So who's this next chap then? It drove the ambassadors potty, but they scrapped away, talking up the delights of their candidates while dissing the competition. For example, someone told the Queen that Archduke Ferdinand had a bigger head than the Earl of Bedford and was unfit to govern. Which is disrespectful to the Earl of Bedford too, poor thing, and to all big-headed men who I'm sure are fit to govern despite their hat size. Meanwhile, there were English candidates to boot, the Earl of Arundel and a man called William Pickering, who had for a while been stranded in France, but was back now at court. And the gossip flowed and thrived and spread like a rash with confident assertion laid on confident assertion. Oh, she's very fond of Robert Dudley, and most intimate with him one moment. Or the next moment, the Venetian ambassador confidently writing, she will marry an individual who until now has been in France on account of his religion, though he has not yet made his appearance, it being known how much she loved him and loves him still. This latter was William Pickering, he had a powerful reputation for a varied and active sex life, did William, and interestingly enough, was one of the brash young men in company with Henry Howard, Earl of Surrey, in 1543 on their famous night out on the town, which led them to being incarcerated in the tower at His Majesty Henry VIII's pleasure. Pickering was welcomed enthusiastically by the Queen, who spent four or five hours with him, a significant show of favour. This had yet another suitor, chewing his lip with rage, the Earl of Arundel, one of the nobles who'd betrayed Jane Grey. It's a toss-up as to whether or not Arundel was motivated in his suit by love of the Queen, or desire to spike the pickering guns, since he was reported to be thinking to flee out of the realm because he could not abide in England if Mr Pickering should marry the Queen, for that they were enemies. The 47 Arundel was no doubt kidding himself, although he was honoured with the Queen's presence at his palace of Nonsuch in the summer of 1559, it would become clear she would not consider his suit. All of this dragged on. Often, Elizabeth appeared to enter detailed and seemingly serious negotiations, particularly with Archduke Charles. It is reasonably unlikely at this stage, though, that Elizabeth seriously considered a quick marriage, all the objections we've discussed to a marriage, both personally and politically, were unresolved. So, why did she keep so many hanging on? Poor old Eric kept going until 1561. Well, partly, as I've said, Elizabeth was having a bit of a hoot. Partly, some of them would simply not take no for an answer. Eric falls into that category. 
And then again, from the Queen's point of view, it enriched her court, having these, um, these ambassadors and suitors around. It kept the Parliament and the Privy Council at bay while she argued that she was considering the various propositions. And it all fed into that tradition of courtly love that oiled the wheels of court, the convenient fiction that everyone was desperately in love with the Queen. The Queen was driving more than her suitors up the proverbial, however. Her loyal servant, William Cecil, was practically on the ceiling. Cecil's concern was the succession, and he did not share his mistress's view that the succession was better left open and by so doing would discourage political instability and plotting behind the nominated heir. As far as Cecil was concerned, England was one fatal illness or one bullet away from the chaos of a disputed succession, with Catholic powers looking hungrily at England's green and pleasant land and advancing the cause of Catholic Mary Queen of Scots. He was a very worried man. His brow was furrowed. It didn't help that Elizabeth, with her dynastic view of life, rather favoured the Stuart claim. As far as Cecil was concerned, Mary Stuart was Catholic, and that was that. He would do pretty much literally anything he could to keep her off the English throne. And anyway, Henry's Act of 1544 had forbidden the Stuarts the succession. Though to Elizabeth's mind, primogeniture was supreme, whatever the Parliament said, and therefore she favoured the Stuart claim, not the claim of the Greys. The Grey in question was Catherine Grey, Jane Grey's sister and maid of honour in Elizabeth's household, and 21 years old in 1561. Given her position as the legal heir to the throne, Catherine Grey was also a honeypot for the ambitious. There was a rumour that Philip of Spain's agents were trying to encourage her to flee England and marry Philip's son. The Earl of Pembroke was chasing her for marriage to his son, despite having deserted Catherine's sister. The Scottish Earl of Arran, a nobleman of royal Scottish blood and in line for the Scottish throne should Mary have an unfortunate run-in with a bus, he was advancing his suit also. Catherine Grey, however, had other ideas. She wanted to marry Edward Seymour, the Earl of Hertford, and her mother promised to intervene to try and persuade the Queen this would be a really good idea, but sadly her mum's death intervened before she could do so. Why, I hear you ask, did they need to persuade the Queen? Well, that is because a law of 1536 made it treason for anyone with royal blood to marry without the monarch's permission. This was the succession and part of the monarch's prerogative. Catherine knew this. Hartford knew this. But like a disreputable developer in South Oxfordshire, they figured that when presented with a fait accompli, what could be done? After all, the Craven Planning Department of the District Council almost always gave retrospective planning permission whenever, whatever they thought of the said developer. So what could Elizabeth do? I should probably apologise here for trying to use a 21st century construction outrage to illustrate the 16th century succession. Sorry for that. Complaint to South Oxfordshire Council. Although, of course, they probably won't do anything about it. Anyway, Catherine and Hartford were to find out that Elizabeth I was made of sterner stuff than said district council. Catherine and Hartford essentially got married secretly and hoped that if and when the news got out... Elizabeth might shrug her shoulders and say, Ah, well, Poppets, you've done it now. Never mind. Love's young dream being what it is, Catherine was soon pregnant, 
Hartford was then sent by the Queen on a diplomatic mission to France, just coincidentally, and Catherine was left all alone as her pregnancy began to show. And so in August 1561, she told Robert Dudley, and Dudley did the only thing he could do, really, and told the Queen. There was a distant crump as the Queen's head exploded and one of the onion domes from Richmond Palace went into orbit as Sawyer's one. Catherine was sent to the Tower. Harford was recalled from Paris and then he was sent to the Tower. The Queen set up a commission to see if the marriage was legal, while Edward Seymour Jr. was born in September 1561. Harford and Catherine now needed to play everything very cleverly. Hope the Queen's fury cooled. Do nothing wrong, kids. So they talked the warder into allowing them to meet, observed the habits of the birds and the bees, and hey presto, Catherine was pregnant again. A small crump could be heard from London as the Queen's head exploded and a further onion dome left Richmond Palace and went into orbit as Sawyer's too. Thomas was born in February 1563. He cost £15,000, the price of the fine levied on Hartford and Catherine for being plonkers. By then, or by May 1562, the commission had reported. Since the marriage had been conducted in secret, there was no paperwork and the officiating minister could not be found. It was therefore declared there had been no legal marriage and Edward and Thomas were declared to be illegitimate. It is, I suppose, a tragic story. Catherine continued to be held in custody and she became very ill. She was allowed to live in Warwickshire with her jailer in comfort, just the two children and 17 attendants. I know from personal experience just how hard it is to get by with only 17 attendants. But by 1568, Catherine had died, probably of anorexia. The affair of Catherine Grey and the violence of Elizabeth's reaction to it has been cited on occasion as an example of an Elizabeth unbalanced in her attitude to marriage. If I can't get married, then neither can you, sort of thing. It's been seen as vindictive brutality towards Catherine. Well, in my humble opinion, it is evidence of no such thing. Catherine and Hartford knew full well the risks that they took. Catherine's marriage and children were a matter of state in a 16th century society and could not be messed about with. Over the next decade, more than one political campaign started in support of the grey claim to the throne, heightened by the fact that they now had heirs. Their marriage affected the succession. Whatever emotions they experienced at Elizabeth's reaction, surprise could not have been one of them. Cecil, on this occasion, actually tried to moderate Elizabeth's wrath, but his concern over the succession was, of course, accentuated by the event, with the grey heirs declared illegitimate, Mary, Queen of Scots' claim was further strengthened. Cecil was the kind of man who did not accept easily any situation where his advice or opinion was not followed. So, he tried another route. At the 1563 Parliament, the House of Commons decided to debate the Queen's marriage and succession. He cannot have escaped the notice of the good members of Parliament that Elizabeth did not feel this was an appropriate subject of parliamentary debate. So why did they do it? Well, there was genuine concern, of course, and that genuine concern of its members was given secret leadership and direction by the invisible hand of Cecil. 
one Alexander Knoll preached before the Queen on the subject of the succession and the danger of ignoring advice before Parliament met, just to get her into the mood. Spookily, Alexandra's kinsmen were in the Cecil household. At Parliament, a group of 24 MPs met the Privy Council and Cecil, among others, helped them draft the articles of their petition. The petition was read formally to the Queen by Thomas North, a man, spookily, with close links to Cecil. Elizabeth listened passively and then shelved the petition under B1N, telling Parliament that she would respond at some future date. But the House of Lords had a hack at the issue next. Once again, Elizabeth listened graciously and did nothing. So far, Cecil's attempt to pressurise Elizabeth into marriage or into resolving the succession had failed. But he was nothing if not tenacious, our Cecil. Cecil's panic was that a monarch was crucial to a European state at the time. Without an undisputed monarch, Elizabeth's subject feared chaos. So, Cecil had a colleague introduce a bill to the Commons, a genuinely radical bill. The most radical part of it was that it described in detail what would happen if Elizabeth died without direct issue and heir. If this came to pass, it was proposed that her authority, her authority, mark you, was transferred to the Privy Council. While the interregnum lasted, England would effectively be a republic. Now, Cecil was no republican, the role of the Privy Council would be to find a successor, but that in itself was a very radical concept. The people choosing a successor. So look, a feature of Elizabeth's long rule will be the constant attempts by Cecil to get his way. Elizabeth was his equal. Sometimes Cecil was win, more often Elizabeth would have her way. On this occasion, the Queen refused to be bounced into a course of action and the bill was also quietly shelved by the Queen. So that's quite enough on the Queen's mariage, or lack of it, for now. Next time we shall look at the thoughts through the ages of the principles that drove Elizabeth's foreign relations and talk about a couple of early events. Until then, gentle listeners, thank you for listening, for your reviews and comments. Good luck everyone and have a great fortnight. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 